0: Welcome to our thought leadership interview series. I'm Brandon Cooper, the Chief Risk Officer here at Venminder. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Elizabeth Khalil. Elizabeth is a partner at the law firm of Dyke-McGossett. Her practice spans all aspects of regulatory compliance and risk management for financial institutions of all sizes, fintech companies, and other service providers to financial institutions, including creating and improving enterprise-wide compliance programs. Her areas of focus include vendor management issues, and UDAP risk. For many years, she was a federal banking regulator in Washington, D.C., first at the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, where she was an enforcement and compliance attorney, and then at the FDIC, where she focused on compliance policy matters, the agency's compliance supervision program, and community banking outreach initiatives. She was also a senior associate at Hogan Lovells, where she served in the firm's financial institutions group and privacy group and helped clients implement Dodd-Frank compliance strategies. Throughout her career, she has served as a subject matter expert on the full alphabet soup of banking regulations and laws and on managing third-party risk. Elizabeth is a member of the International Association of Privacy Professionals, the American Bankruptcy Institute, the Federal Communications Bar. She also holds three privacy-related certifications through IAPP. She's a graduate of Georgetown University and the University of Michigan Law School. Without further ado, welcome, Elizabeth.
1: Thank you so much, Brandon. Um I'm really happy to be here today talking with everybody out there who's listening. It's um, an exciting and I know at times frustrating time to be involved in third-party issues, and so I'm happy to share any um, kind of lessons learned and insights I can give.
0: That's a terrific introduction, I think, and certainly sets the stage well. I think everybody feels that same level of concern, frustration, and difficulty in third-party risk. And from from your perspective along that lines, you know, how do you think financial institutions are doing overall when it comes to third-party risk management?
1: You know, I think by now, um, banks and credit unions in particular really get it overall. They really understand the need to um, devote quite a few resources, um, significant amounts of thought and attention to third-party issues. Um, you know, they really have to in a lot of ways because with the evolution of, so many products and services that essentially require use of third parties to deliver, they're really discovering that they have to pay attention to that, not only to please regulators, but really to maintain um, an appropriate level uh, of risk management for their own purposes. So I've I really seen that evolve a lot over, uh, I guess, the past 15 years of my career. Uh, initially, I would say that it, it was more Uh, a bit of a box-checking kind of exercise and um, less sort of understanding of, hey, this is really important to us, too, for our own risk management purposes. So I think we've really reached a point where um, third-party risk management has matured a lot um, over the past decade or so. I think there are some specific areas that I would say still, um, you know, I see a lot of need for increased attention. um, Over and over again, Uh, sort of the facts change, you know, the names change, the particular details change, but these sort of fundamental issues continue to surface over and over again over the years. And so, um, you know, I I try to do my best to help institutions uh, and their service providers understand that they need to pay attention to those areas in particular.
0: It's an excellent point you raised about how the uh, expectations have evolved. I mean, early on when I was involved with uh, vendor management way back, probably 15, 20 years ago, it was a lot more of kind of a checklist type mentality. We know we ought to do just these basic activities and some form of, uh, you know, listening program or looking at their at their reporting uh, and that sort of thing. But the, the regulations certainly have evolved and so have the expectations. And I do think, you know, thinking on sort of a macro level, we do all sort of now get it that it's the right thing to do not just because the guidance says to do it because but because it's the right thing to do to help protect our consumers and the overall financial uh services industry. So you yeah. know, one area I'd love to get your perspective on are uh, the fintech companies that you've dealt with. What are what are some of the challenges you've seen with them in in incorporating the uh you know the the regulatory guidance and meeting uh financial institution expectations.
1: Sure, I, I think that's a great example of how uh, kind of the the landscape of products and services has been evolving, and so uh, the landscape of third-party oversight and risk management has to evolve too. So banks and credit unions that want to get into the more, uh, I would say, techy space, you know, offering um, digital mortgages, offering uh, mobile financial services, and so forth, are partnering with uh, startup sort of fintech firms to deliver those products and services. And, of course, as a general matter, we want to make sure that, um, you know, financial institutions are in compliance with all applicable laws and regulations, whether they conduct an activity directly or through a third party like a fintech company. So, by now, again, I think the approach has matured to a point where financial institutions are used to uh, requiring, you know, certain language, uh, reps and warranties from their third party partners as to regulatory compliance, Um One sort of twist there that I've been seeing lately is in delivering uh, digital mortgage functionality where uh, the reps and warranties are saying, you know, you, the fintech company providing this platform functionality for this, you will comply with all applicable laws and regulations, including this and such and so forth, including things like TRID. Um, And so then the fintech companies are saying, well, hey, like we're only providing this and this and this functionality, we don't control, uh, you know, the release of uh, disclosures under trade. We, we can't confirm that, uh, you know, they're going to be provided to the consumer within an applicable timeframe, for example, because somebody at the financial institution in this particular setup is controlling that lever. Um, so I, I think that banks and credit unions and their fintech partners are really going to have to drill down kind of on a granular level to see, okay, in this particular relationship, who is doing what? What do we need to make sure that the other side is attesting to? Um, It's really not like a one-size-fits-all approach because as we see these products and services uh, evolve, the sort of details of each are evolving too. And so there's not one sort of blanket set of language that makes sense in these vendor agreements. You definitely want to make sure that everybody is following all the laws and regulations that they're supposed to and supporting you in meeting your obligations, but it's also going to be important to determine what is reasonable to require and expect of the other side too, depending on exactly what they're doing.
0: That's a great point. Again, you really do need to kind of map out where those handoffs occur and whether you yeah. sort of a process map of some sort or just generally sit down and say, okay, here's where our role in this part of the process ends and here's where yours picks up and have that well documented. So there aren't these potential gaps that exist that you don't discover until a problem really has occurred.
1: Right. And everybody has to be on the same page. You know, if there's a disconnect uh, between one side thinking, well, we're only responsible for this, we have no responsibility for, you know, trade compliance or whatever other reg or law Uh, they're talking about. And in reality, the other side thinks, well, of course you have responsibility for that. You're doing X, Y, and Z. Uh, That can be a problem, obviously.
0: Absolutely. I want to shift gears slightly and talk about another area that uh, you're an expert in, and that's UDAP. UDAP has gotten Mm -hmm. an incredible amount of attention over the past few years because it's been so closely tied to so many enforcement actions. I'd love to get your perspective on what you think about UDAP and kind of a state-of-the-industry type remark on, on where you think things are.
1: Sure. I mean, I know that, that UDAP is one of the major headache areas for um, everybody. Um, when you say, now UDAP, unfair, deceptive, or abusive action practices, UDAP, I feel like people say it with a groan, kind of like UDAP. <laughs> um, so I think one of the frustrations that people have that they've expressed to me is not knowing, not being able to anticipate um, what could be deemed unfair, deceptive, or abusive, since. Uh, We don't have specific regulations giving examples of what falls into each bucket. Uh, I do think, not to be the bearer of bad news, but I I do think just to manage expectations, because of the nature of UDAP, I, I don't think it's really realistic to expect that we're going to have regulations that would exhaustively describe activities that could Be unfair, deceptive, or abusive. We already have standards for each. Obviously, um, you know, unfair, deceptive, or abusive is has been defined either in for abusive in Dodd Frank and unfair and deceptive. Um, We have the Federal Trade Commission uh, precedents that we've looked to for many years to develop the standards for those. So I I think it it is always going to involve a judgment call. Um, Having been involved in You'd have unfair and deceptive um, enforcement actions um, at the OCC during my time as an enforcement attorney and then throughout the rest of my career from different perspectives. It, it's always going to really involve a judgment call, but I think within the standards that we do have for each. I think I don't want to say it's not that hard, I, but I do want to say that I think we do have guiding principles that can be really helpful for us. So with deception, for example, you know, you don't need consumer harm for deception. You just need a material misstatement or omission that's likely to mislead the reasonable consumer. So, you know, take a look at your disclosures. Are they easy to understand? Are they transparent? Um, you know, sometimes I read draft disclosures and I I say, you know, I've been a bank regulatory attorney for 15 years, and I don't understand what this provision says. If I were a consumer trying to get a problem resolved or whatever the provision relates to, I don't understand the process for that. And that's a problem. So, you know, putting your your disclosures in that case through, you know, rigorous process of having people read it with kind of that reasonable consumer's eye, uh, I think can be really helpful. Um, on the unfairness side, I, I think frequently I've seen situations that have been deemed unfair that where the consumer is kind of trapped in sort of, you know, whether it's a Kafka-esque situation or a situation where they can't get an issue resolved. There's sort of like nothing they really could have reasonably done to avoid it. Um and that really gets at the heart of that prong of unfairness with which is, you know, you have consumer harm that the consumer couldn't reasonably have avoided. And I think if you really take a uh, hard, rigorous look at your practices, I, I think it starts to become a bit more clear as to how uh, you know a regulator could see it through that prism of unfairness, deceptive, or abusiveness.
0: And A couple of comments on that. I mean, I, I really do think you hit the nail on the head with trying to look at it from a reasonable consumer perspective and, and really kind of kick the tires. That it, if If I, as an experienced compliance manager and risk manager, can't make sense of it, then clearly the average consumer isn't going to be Uh, too happy with what they're seeing. I think a couple of the other things we have seen loud and clear through the enforcement actions over the years are, you know, that the the regulators are looking at consumer complaints or areas of uh, consumer confusion or areas where, you know, a product is either difficult to understand, tough to cancel, or just laden with uh, these fees and and that sort of thing that might give rise to consumer concerns. I think that really does draw the uh, regulators' attention and ire in a lot of cases. So I I think a really good description of kind of where some of those
1: hot buttons are. I think, and you touched on the consumer complaint issue. Uh, consumer complaints, you know, whether you're receiving them directly or through use of a third party, keeping an eye on those complaints and trends, especially with those complaints, is hugely helpful. Um, so this touches on, you know, vendor management issue too. So where you're having a third party, be that consumer-facing party, to take in and process complaints and. Maybe handle complaints too. It's really important to stay on top of how they're handling that and what they're seeing and what's coming in. Um, so if you're seeing trends that are, you know, uh, consumers are complaining about feeling that they were misled about one particular aspect of your product, or you see that these certain complaints are being handled in a particular way that may be of concern. Um, so maybe maybe the call center employees uh, or contractors need to be overseen to make sure that they're adhering to scripts and trained appropriately and so forth. And they're not giving misleading information to consumers that contact them um, because that's a, that's the sort of entry point for UDAP that I've seen a lot over the years.
0: You know, it's interesting. It's a great segue to something else I wanted to ask you about. When we were talking in preparation for this, we were talking about, you know, what are some of the guiding principles that are found in all of the regulatory guidance pertaining to third-party risk? Whether you're looking at the good old Bulletin 29 of 2013 by the OCC or 44 of 2008 from uh, the FDIC, you know, they they really harp on some of the same guiding principles around uh, risk management and due diligence and selecting a third party. But I found it interesting. There's one particular uh, area that you felt was Uh, one that people traditionally fall short on. You want to elaborate on
1: that? Uh, Yeah, monitoring for sure. That's huge. And uh, for some reason, I I know you've said that you see it sometimes as the forgotten pillar of vendor management. And, you know, if I can kind of put out one public service announcement (laughs) to the the whole world, I would say do not forget about monitoring because that's where probably more than any other phase of third-party relationships I've seen things go wrong is in the monitoring. Um, And in some ways, that might not be surprising because if you if you have a relationship that seems kind of good, even airtight from the beginning, so you you've done your due diligence, you're comfortable with that, you have a great contract, you feel like you have wonderful provisions in that contract, you feel like things are really good. I I think you may be more likely to feel you can sit back a little bit and um, just kind of let the vendor do what you believe they'll do really well. You know, things were more concerning from the outset you might not have engaged that vendor or you know you might have um exercised more stringent oversight from the beginning but where things seem good from the beginning i think there's kind of more of an uh, a risk of sitting back and and not being vigorous and active in your oversight so that ongoing monitoring is super super important and there's not just really one size fits all way to do monitoring and you know that may evolve the way that you want to conduct your monitoring with a particular third party um can and maybe should evolve over the course of the relationship so as things go on whether something changes like you're having the vendor do something different or you're doing something different or you just discover in the course of the relationship that this type of monitoring is more helpful than that for this particular relationship it, you know don't be afraid to change things up as time goes on you know you may find at times you need to do site visits for one type of vendor, whereas for another type of vendor, you may need certain types of reports from them at certain intervals. And then as time goes on, maybe you feel that needs to change and kind of swap that out and have a different type of monitoring that you focus on depending on, you know, issues that you discover, uh, things that you find helpful or not helpful over time. Uh, Really treat it as a living, evolving thing both the relationship and the way that you monitor
0: many many excellent points in there I mean first and foremost I totally agree with you you put so much time and effort into the due diligence and risk assessment part of the process once the contract signed you, you sometimes lull yourself into this false sense of security that everything seemed great so everything must be going well and then you just miss the opportunity to catch something very fundamental fairly early on before it becomes the problem I mean you're, you're right. kind of looking at, at the tip of the iceberg and not recognizing it. And then by the time that you do discover it, and sometimes it's just far, far too late to do much to repair the relationship or you realize you've got a lot of cleanup work to do. But I think it's, right. it's totally preventable if you just kind of stay on top of some sort of organized, customized, ongoing monitoring, whether it be you know, a customer listening for a call center, mystery shopping for cards being sold in retail locations, reviewing disclosures or regular reports. Any of those can really keep you out of a lot of trouble, so I'm I'm glad to hear you uh, on on sort of the same page with that. I guess one final question I would have for you, Um, and this is really more observational than anything else, but do you feel like risk management is getting enough attention, generally speaking, from senior management and the board, and what sort of things can they do to better demonstrate their level of involvement?
1: Um, Well, of course, I'm I'm in risk management, so I'll say that risk management never gets enough attention. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I think, you know, in general, banks and credit unions want to do the right thing. I think, you know, senior management and the board, they're pulled in so many different directions. Uh, It can be hard for them to figure out how to appropriately prioritize issues. Um, But I think, you know, especially we've been seeing a lot more expectations from regulators over the past several years of even outside directors. Uh, being more actively involved and educated about what's going on in the institution i think it's it's important for um everyone who is in a senior leadership role to really have a handle on what's going on throughout the institution not necessarily on a micromanaging type of level but you know really robustly reviewing reports um asking good questions asking the right questions Thinking about how, in terms of specifically around um, third-party relationships, how do these fit in with the strategic goals of the institution, and you know where they want to go, and so forth. So I, I think you can strike the balance between being too micromanaging and being too hands off. I think risk management again, you can never really devote too much attention to it. Um, there's always there's always room for more. And it really can't be, I think this is an important point to consider. Again, it's really not about checking boxes to please regulators. It's really about, um, you know, appropriately mitigating risk to that institution and protecting the institution, protecting the brand, you know, protecting where they want to be out in the world and how they want others to see the institution.
0: Right. I totally agree with that. And it's funny because, I mean, I I really try to make a point of, making sure that the time that I was allotted with senior management or with the board knowing how busy they were that I that I submitted both an oral you know gave an oral presentation as well as a written one and then tried to make sure that translated through into the uh, minutes of those meetings so that you know it was evident that it was a good healthy discussion hopefully some level of educated educated uh uh feedback involved and and really helping set guidance uh within the institution as to how we expect uh third party risk to be handled
1: yeah. And, and and I mean, not and just one last point. I mean, not uh, again, uh, not to make it sound like it's about pr- pleasing regulators, but in terms of, uh, you know, making it easier for examiners who come in to uh, see clearly that your institution is placing an appropriately strong and robust focus on, on risk management, third party oversight. It's really important to document everything you're doing and document it clearly. So have, you know, really great minutes have clearly written policies and procedures, have evidence that those policies and procedures are being followed and tested, that employees are being trained um, and documenting the oversight that you have with third parties. So, you know, how are you doing monitoring? How are you documenting how you're following up on whatever's flagged by that monitoring and so forth? So it's important to tell that story well um, and truthfully, obviously, um, to the examiners, because, you know, if you don't make it clear what you're doing and easy for them to understand what you're doing, you can't expect to really get credit for it.
0: Absolutely. It's, it's funny, the, the old uh, compliance expression of, if, if it isn't documented, it didn't happen, I think yep. really play in that case. So, Well, Elizabeth, I appreciate the time today. Um, any closing comments? Any last thoughts? Uh,
1: just, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you today, and As you can tell, I could probably talk about third-party risk management and UDAP um, all week. So um, I appreciate this opportunity, and and I hope people found it helpful.
0: Sounds great. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you again to everybody for listening in and joining this session, and thank you, Elizabeth, for such an informative session. Please be on the lookout for future interviews in this series. And with that, I wish you a good day, and thanks again.